Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey there, heroes. Modifier is back from that little hiatus, and I am back from Gen Con. Just as I was starting to miss you all so, so much, I got to see a lot of you in real life at the one-shot meetup. Gen Con was a lot. It is it is definitely the biggest game convention, and this year was the 50th anniversary, and all of the badges sold out before the convention, and I know we were all feeling the size and the stress a bit, but getting to chat with you and play games and share stories on Saturday evening was exactly what I needed. I just want to take a minute here to thank you specifically for the heartfelt messages you shared of how this podcast and this network affect your lives. It's a joy for us to do what we do and to share it. And when I hear that our work has bolstered you in some way or kept you company or made things brighter, I am so floored and so happy that we could do that for you. Heroes, I am so happy that you are here. I am I'm happy that you are here listening to our shows, and I am so happy that you are here on this earth. Whether or not you have ever reached out directly, I am glad that you specifically are there on the other end. You make this whole thing worth it. And now, this week, I'd like to tell you about Catching Monsters. So we are going to be talking with Jonathan Barron about his RPG, Magi Monsters. It's a game that successfully kickstarted a few years ago, so in addition to talking about the difficulties of adapting the Pokemon Monster Hunter genre to tabletop, we got a chance to look at a project post-Kickstarter fulfillment and what that whole thing is like. Let's get to the show. So joining me this week, I've got Jonathan Barron, and we are going to talk about his game, Magi Monsters. Uh, but first, Jonathan, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Maybe uh, either where people may know you from or what got you into making games? Sure. Uh, so my name is Jonathan Barron. Uh, some people call me John. And I've been playing role-playing games for close to 20 years now, and uh People probably would only know me from Magi Monsters. I've done a couple other random things that never really took off. But, uh, yeah, Magi Monsters is my main claim to fame. It's a game that me and my friends made. It's a RPG that mixes elements of Pokemon, monster catching, with uh, fantasy role-playing like D&D. Awesome. Uh, and that is part of like, like, uh, the Pokemon aspect. That's part of why I was really curious to talk to you about Magi Monsters is, um, heroes may be familiar with, uh, Pranks Paul's new show adventure. Their first campaign was, uh, they used the Pokemon tabletop system. And I know they had some, some opinions about it, uh, using it, you know, both, both good and bad. And then, uh, we've, there's another show, uh, that talks about modifying games and, and hacking games. It's, uh, Brandon and James over at Stop Hack and Roll. And they had a whole episode. Uh, devoted to trying to figure out how to make a Pokemon game and sort of the difficulties that one encounters when trying to tackle that monster catching genre. Um, and, and here it is. Here's this whole system that you guys, uh, you know, built from the ground up to, to do just that. So I'm, I'm super excited to talk about that. And I am also really interested. Um, it's been a little while since you guys kickstarted. Uh, we talk a lot on the show to people who are about to kickstart or are in the middle of kickstarting. 
Um, but we rarely get a look at at what it's like a little on later on down the line. So uh, if that's cool, we'll talk about that some too. Sure. So so Magi Monsters, uh, you, it's a game that you made with some of your friends. Uh, what what got you guys interested in in making this game? Uh, basically, it was just a matter of we liked role playing games, we liked Pokemon. <laughs> Why not play both? And and the issue was at the time. Um, there wasn't really anything to do uh, for for that kind of game. You had to do some kind of homebrew yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pokemon Tabletop was in development around the same time. They came a little bit after our initial playtest. Uh, we never ended up using them at all, um, just because initially we didn't really know about them. Mm-hmm. And by the time we had learned, they were kind of in their beta. They were still building up a lot of stuff. We had already developed our entire system, so we never really felt the need to convert over, and we we started liking our system a lot. So, uh, and when you make your own system, you can change the rules whenever you want, so that (laughs) makes it easier. That is very true. (laughs) So did it, was it always, like, from the start, was it always your own unique system, or did it, uh, did you try um, messing with any other existing systems? Uh, I would say we, we mixed in elements from games we knew, uh, we mostly come from Dungeons and Dragons, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, there's obviously elements there. And at the time, Fourth Edition was out, um, which Fourth Edition I think inspired us a little bit because the way Fourth Edition's attacks work, where you know you have like that boxed-in technique, and it's like, okay, you have this, you can do it this many times per day, um, whatever. And we're like, this reminds us of Pokemon. We're like. How hard could it be to, to do something with Pokemon that's basically similar to 4th edition? And that was kind of one of our jumping off points. Um, mm. But we did want to be different. So, like, um, our skill system is very different from D&D. It's much... I would say it's more similar to uh, White Wolf, if you ever played, yeah. like, a World of Darkness mm-hmm. um, game. Uh, we Like, we... If you look at our character sheet, because um, you have essentially two characters because you have your your trainer and then you also have your monsters and the trainer um they have all the skills and they fill in like dots to get skills so that that was part of the way that we came up with it though we don't have dice pools um Mm -hmm. so it's a little bit different there too yeah and the the premise i guess of this game i read through a little bit what you've got available online there uh is pokemon sort of the feel you were looking for with this game or be, because the the lore that's presented is a little bit a little bit more fantasy leaning um it seems a little darker maybe yeah we figured um obviously the the pokemon themes are there and that's not a mistake or anything but we figured you know if we're making our own uh creative intellectual title why not do something new? So we were like, well, what if you had something that was a little bit more fantasy, more medieval? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started brainstorming this idea. I was like, well, what if, you know, it's not this happy-go-lucky Pokemon world where everybody loves Pokemon and, you know, there's Pokemon on every street corner, every shopkeep has a Pokemon, like, in their store. I'm like, what if humans are, like, afraid of these monsters? And, like, they're actually kind of scary, more like D&D. And mm-hmm. we kind of went with that, and it led us to um, to develop this campaign setting where I like to call it like a dystopian fantasy world. Um, yeah. 
and which I, I don't think you, you do see in RPGs, not not as much. Um, like I would say, like Dark Sun, the D and D campaign setting is mm-hmm. is like kind of like you know that future apocalypse. You know, magic destroyed the world, and this is kind of similar. It's like um, monsters destroyed the world, but they were created with magic. So you know that's where the name comes from, Magi monsters. Yeah. It was the Magi made the monsters. So okay. Um, and uh, so then we came up with this storyline where we're like, oh, well, well, why, how did the monsters take over? If you can catch monsters, then you should be able to fight them back. But then we're like, well, what if the magic or like the knowledge of how to capture monsters had been lost for centuries? And so nobody knew how to capture monsters until recent memory. And mm-hmm. so that's why they've kind of like run wild over the, over the continent. And uh, so we came up with that idea, I I think it was kind of neat, and obviously you could play with your own yeah. campaign setting if you wanted to, but uh, we we figured we would present something new um, for you to work with if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the player characters are kind of uncovering this this old art, this old technology, or however however you want to look at it. Right, and it and it opens up things for like you know you're you're exploring like really long lost crypts and tombs and temples Mm -hmm. that really haven't been touched for like you know a couple hundred years because all these places have been abandoned ever since the monsters took over and so there's a lot of new stuff for you to discover because it can all be stuff that you know uh has been lost for so long very cool um so what were some of the first monsters that you guys came up with Let's see, a, a, a couple of the frog ones, I think, um, probably the first one that I ever designed was Lilybog, which is kind of a plant frog monster. And it's, well, it's funny because initially when I was de- designing it and I was coming up with some of the new monsters to bring back to the rest of the team and I was like, I need to, cause I, I was like really spearheading it and I wanted to, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring them back and like, Okay, here's some monsters that I designed. You know, this is we can do this. And so one of my ideas was that I was like, well, depending on what kind of animal they are, that determines like part of their type. You know, we in our game we call it affinity, but in Pokemon type, I was mm-hmm. like, so you would have lots of frogs, and like each of them is water type, but then they branch out into other types. So like you know, there's a there's a frog type that also that's it's water and then plant, or or water mm-hmm. and fire, or you know water and whatever and and i was like and then turtles they would all be like stone types and and that that kind of fell by the wayside a little bit but um that was one of my initial plans for for the game oh neat are they they're all based on actual animals uh a lot of them are um uh there's a there's some other stuff that got worked in later um just to give a variety um, there's one called the Stein mask and it's like a floating, uh, mask. And there's <laughs> one, one actually from Japanese mythology called the Yukiana, which is like a ice spirit. Um, mm. so there, there's some random stuff in there. A lot of them are based off animals because the lore is that the Magi were experimenting on real animals and that's where, you know, a lot of the monsters came from. And then the magic kind of infused throughout the world and, and other things started to come to life, too. Okay, that makes sense. Was it difficult coming up with them and, ma- and like having to make sure that there wasn't a Pokemon or like a Digimon or something that looked uh, too much like it? 
Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. <laughs> there was actually, I would say there was a couple designs that we ended up getting rid of because we were like, oh, this is a little too much like a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> and we we still, like, I think there's still been one or two monsters that people are like, oh, well, this this just looks like a Pokemon. Oh, like, there's, well, there's so many of them, though. You can't, uh, <laughs> you can't I mean, not. there's... I, I'm pretty sure, like, there's 800 now or something. No, when it's you include amazing. Mega Evolutions. Oh so, gosh. <laughs> yeah, but, that's uh, that is a lot. Yeah, it's it's hard to avoid all of them. Digimonsters, they they always they have a a much more unique feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I I always thought Digimonsters felt really disconnected when they evolve. Like, they mm. start off as this little blob thing, and then they're like a dinosaur, and then they're like an angel. <laughs> yeah, because you know why not? <laughs> it yeah. it feels right in line with like um those Tamagotchis and the little digital pets, where they like all start out as a blob, but then it's just it could be anything. It's well, I think I be- believe that's where they started out. Like, uh, actually, when I was a kid, you would because you could get the Tamagotchis that were the Digimon. Oh no. You could actually connect them to your friend's Digimon, and then they would fight. Um, I don't know if that came before the cartoon or afterwards. I honestly don't oh, know. I don't know. That's way more advanced than any of the little pets I had. So that's really cool, though. Yeah, that was that was like a, yeah, that was like oh. in the early nineties. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um. So what did when when you first started making Magi Monsters? Like, what did it look like? Did it look anything like the game that you ended up with? It looked very similar to what we ended up with. Uh, we scaled back a lot of the numbers. Um, so we tried to do, for for all the game stats, we tried to really um, pull them in so they weren't just all over the place. Because I would say in the original version we were running, uh, the statistics would range really far. Like, they would... That would be compared to what it is now. I would say like there would be, you know, like you would have between a one and a twelve range. Whereas mm-hmm. now we generally keep all the base stats between a one and five. So it's like we left it's like less than half. Mm. Um and we did that for ease of play and uh you know, just to cut down on mathematics and also to to kind of put a lot more of the monsters on an equal footing. Um and then it's funny because uh when Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition came out, they kind of did a very similar thing where it's like if you look from 3rd Edition to 5th Edition, they really mm-hmm. scaled back the numbers, you know, especially like the bonuses. Oh, okay, and, yeah. You know, you went from having like, you know, a plus 15 to hit to like a plus 5. And, mm-hmm. and like armor classes went down. So it's like you could have a first level character that in theory they could they could attack like a giant, you know. Um, they're still not likely to win, but they yeah. did them possibly, and that's that's kind of where we are. Where we tried to have like even the most powerful monsters in the game, you can still fight them. It's just mm-hmm. you're not you're not likely to win, but you can still hit them and yeah. deal damage. So oh, nice. Okay, yeah, and that feels like a, a little bit more believable. Like you might you might not be the best out there, but like you you could you could hit a giant, you could hit a, a monster maybe maybe once. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's the last thing you do. Um very cool. Uh were there always so you so you've got character sheets uh for the actual the player character, the the binders. Um and then there are sheets for each of the monsters as well. 
um, like little little half or, or third sheets worth of statistics. Were, was there that much information for both people, like both characters? Because you're because you're playing the binder, but you're also in charge of their monsters as well. That it's a lot going on. Um, right. I so would say that... initially it was actually much more. Um, oh, gosh. We, we scaled it back a lot. Um, the <laughs> we actually the initial prototypes that we had, um, our character sheets would be like ten pages long. <laughs> I mean, like to to keep track of all the stuff that we wanted yeah. to keep track of, because um, we were our initial game was a straight up conversion from Pokemon. So we were like anything in Pokemon, we are putting in this game, we are converting it straight away. Mm. And then after playtesting, that's when we went, okay, we don't need this, we don't need this, this is confusing, mm. and we just we just hacked as much of it away as we could to to make it easier. And that was that was what we wanted to do was to just yeah. make it really approachable. I think it's still fairly complicated for an RPG. Um, mm-hmm. Like I've played this with beginners a lot because uh, it's enticing for somebody who's never played a tabletop. They're like, oh well, I I like Pokemon, so I've demoed mm-hmm. it a lot of times, and uh, and I and I'm still like I'm constantly learning. Like, okay, what's the best way to show these people? You know, because even little things like uh, I take for granted after role playing for so long, like you know, first you roll to hit, then you roll to damage. That's pretty mm-hmm. common in most role playing games, but most people don't know that because it, if you play Pokemon, it's like okay, I pick my attack and I do damage. I don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what the in between steps are. So right, yeah, the video game does that for me. Like... Exactly. So uh, so yeah, we tried to we tried to like scale down as much like calculations that you're going to need to make in your head and just make it as as simple as we can, which, you know, that's one of the complaints I've heard about the Pokemon tabletop is that it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very true to Pokemon, which is, again, that's what we were trying to do in it initially, but it's like yeah. when you're using your brain as opposed to your, your Game Boy, you know, it, it takes a lot more effort for you to calculate all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and we so we just wanted to uh, simplify the numbers. We also instead of doing initially, we did like we were leveling like you would level to a hundred, like that would be your max level for your monster, and gosh, yeah. So we took that back to twenty because we were like, there's no need because because it would be ridiculous because you would go through fights and you're like, okay, I gained two levels, I gained three levels. What do I have to mm-hmm. change? And it was like it was just so much bookkeeping in between each fight. And it, mm-hmm. it was like, it was just crazy. And we and our playtests, we would do playtests on the weekends, and we would do like eight to ten hour playtests. And oh, gosh. because we would do it once a month, and that was like the best way we could get together is like everybody would go to one person's house, and we would just play for as long as we could. And you know, in that setting, you know, it's not too bad because you're doing it all at once. But we're like, this is this is too much to ask of a of a common person. To, to like do all this work so you know yeah uh, you weren't doing like EVs and IVs and stuff were you uh, <laughs> I think initially we we, ha- we toyed with stuff like that it's, it's not in the game now well I would say there's a, there's a small thing because one of the classes you can be a breeder and so one of, okay. one of the things the breeder can do 
is he can actually breed stuff into his his Pokemon and mm. so, or not Pokemon ma- magic monsters, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but he can breed in so that uh, he can give them a plus one bonus to a stat, and so uh, but then that makes it harder to breed. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it's not like you you go okay well it's not the max bonus so I have to start all over again. It's just a it's just a plus one so it's not. It's still it's still pretty good when you're dealing with such yeah. small numbers, but uh, but yeah, so that's one of the fun things about the breeder. Um, but unfortunately, the breeder is very they're very weak at the beginning of the campaign. But if you play a breeder from the beginning and start breeding, you know, then you can get like really powerful monsters by the end of the game. Mm. Hot tips. Was there anything that you had to cut out that you wish there was a you would have been able to keep in? From those like the early play tests, um, I don't think so. Well, I kind of like the friendship mechanic, hmm. um, which you know, like in Pokemon, you have you have like the friendship meter, and it's like an unseen stat. But like um, certain Pokemon, they need it to evolve. You know, like you need a, I don't know, yeah. you have to you have to be friendly to to get an Espeon or an Umbreon and things mm-hmm. like that. And that was kind of fun, but again, it was just it was just too much bookkeeping. It was it was yeah. something that you had to keep track of, and ninety percent of the time it didn't matter. And it it offered some fun role playing, you know, like the the game master could be like, "Oh, this this monster does not like you. You need to you need to become <laughs> friends with it." <laughs> oh my gosh, um, that that reminds me oh, the the monsters that these characters have bound to them. Um, are they is there any mechanic at, at play for like oh they decide they don't want to do the thing that you asked them to do or um i know one of the things that the the folks um in adventure were having trouble with was they call one monster but oh a psyduck came out instead like um <laughs> d- does uh, that happen here we we didn't include any mechanics like that uh, we okay. thought it was kind of too much trouble um we obviously know that existed like i think at one point we had like, you know, oh, well, if you traded, if you traded your monster and you didn't have like, you know, such and such, then they wouldn't always listen to you. And like, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth putting in the game. Yeah. So, um. Cool. So once they're bound to you, like they're your, they're your buddy, they will do yeah, the thing. They, they will good. listen to you. Cool. Yeah, whether they like it or not. I mean, you can, and you're a game master could role play in different ways if they wanted to be like, oh, well, he, he's doing it, but begrudgingly. You know, <laughs> he's he's being a sulky teen about it. Um, is there a limit to the number of monsters that a character can have bound to them? Yeah. Um, so we we keep the limit at three instead of six. We we started with mm-hmm. six, and you know six like Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Um, but we found it was it was a lot. Like it was yeah. it was really more than you would need. Um, and so we we settled on three, uh, which we thought was good. The one exception is the ranger who can carry four. Um, okay. and that's like one of the extra things they get for their their class, and because they're all, the ranger is also really good at catching monsters. So so we were like, oh well, if they're really good at catching, maybe they can carry an extra one. Uh, but yeah, we found like if you if you can carry three monsters with you, and you know you kind of dedicate yourself to them. It works out pretty well. And then instead of having a computer, uh, what we did was we, we said, well, the magic crystals that you keep the monsters in, 
they kind of mm-hmm. they kind of power down if you have more than three active, and then you mm. you have to do a ritual to 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 bring them back up, and then but you can never have more than three at a time. You know they don't get magically transported somewhere. It was like you you still carry them on your person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously there's going to be somebody who's going to want to try and catch all the monsters, but uh, <laughs> but in a tabletop, it's it's really kind of it's almost a fool's errand, you know, <laughs> because if you're playing if you're playing on the Game Boy, you know, you can you can play with yourself for 200 mm-hmm. plus hours. There's no problem. You have a limited amount of time that you can be with other people at the table. <laughs> That so. they're going to put up with your quest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah eventually someone's going to be like, oh, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, uh, your playtest group, is it pretty much the same people, like the, the folks that you made the game with? It is. It is all the same guys. There's one guy who he did not want to join the company. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he was busy with life. He He has kids. Well, a lot of us have kids now, but he was the first <laughs> one of us to have kids. And uh, and basically, he was just too busy with work and everything. Uh, he did still help us out with the game a little bit here and there. There's a couple monsters that he designed himself. Um, so there was no hard feelings or anything. Uh, and then we cool. brought in one extra person uh, who was a college friend of ours. who She has a doctorate in English. And she was oh, basically wow. our, she was our editor. Um, and among other things. And, um, yeah, so we, we, we all brought a little bit different skill set to the table. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we have one guy who, uh, he did a lot of the initial play test, um, like a lot, a lot of it. And he's actually a graphic designer. And so he actually designed the book for us as well. And, um, and he did, a, he did some of the artwork. Uh, I was more of the gung ho, like, okay, pushing everybody through. You know, we need to do this. We can do this. You know, and yeah. I gathered everybody, and because because a lot of them did didn't really believe in it initially. They're like, <laughs> "You're crazy," and I'm like, "No, I've done the research. I think we can do it." And uh, and so I was really I was really pushing everybody to do it. Another guy, he did he did more of the creative stuff. He wrote a lot of the stories in the book, mm. and then um. He also he helped us uh, do a lot of the the stats um, for for the monsters. Uh, ultimately, what we ended up doing for the stats. So initially, when we were doing Pokemon, what we did was we just converted uh, their stats to our numbers, mm-hmm. and which was fine. But you get monsters that are all over the place as far as power level. Yeah. And so. What we ended up doing was uh, I created a point by system um, similar to what you find in other games. And I was like, we'll use this and then we'll just come up with a base number for our monsters. And so uh, we we statted them all out with a point by system. And we actually ended up putting it in the book if you wanted to make your own. And uh, and so that's how we got them all like kind of on an equal footing. Um Ooh. Okay. You know, there's some that are more min and maxed and some that are just across the board. They're good at everything. Uh, and so the the one guy who did a lot of the writing, he he probably statted out um, a good 75% of the monsters himself. Um, he just made an Excel spreadsheet and uh, and he, he went down the line one day because it was getting towards the end. And uh, we were like, all right, we got to finish this up. We got to finish this up. And we had... Um, because we had made a lot of new monsters towards the end, 
and mm-hmm. we're like, okay, we got to stat all these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that, about statting these, these monsters out. And also, uh, I remember the other thing I was going to ask, um, keeping them like, it's mentioned that they are, you know, unique. They have personalities, you know, they're like not every bat pack or something is the same. Right. So how do you do that? That's my favorite monster from the website, by the way. <laughs> oh, the bat pack. Yeah, yeah. that was actually, uh, that was a backer created one. Oh, nice. We had a con, we had a contest while we were doing the campaign and we told everybody, uh, we would take submissions and we did two submissions. We did one where people could draw a monster and one where they could describe one. Uh-huh. And the bat pack was actually somebody, somebody drew it and submitted it. <laughs> nice. Well. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a flying backpack that, uh, those, those little it's bat like, wings. I, I had to do a double yeah. take. I was like, "Oh, what now?" <laughs> yeah, we 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 loved it a lot when we, when we initially got that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So oh, now I forgot what the question was. Oh yeah, the, like the the stats and uh, keeping keeping them individual or making them individuals. Like, how do you how do you do that? Oh, um, so we kind of like we tried to make up a little bit of lore with each monster, uh, and just going from there, we were like, okay, well, maybe this one's more better on attack. This one's better on defense. And then we left enough open that um, as the monsters level up, they they get extra abilities. And, uh, well, in Pokemon, you would call it abilities. In our game, you call it traits. They're essentially like, like feats in D&D where they're extra things they can do. And so there's starting ones that, like, all monster... All, all monsters of that race would have. And then we, we figured we would make uh, more that they could get while they level up. And so we're like, this makes them more unique because, you know, they can really, you can really as a trainer go, okay, I want to do this with my monster. I want to do this with my monster. And then we, we left it up to the GM. Like, if you want to play, you know, oh, this month, this backpack's a little, like, mischievous or this backpack's really sp- really shy, mm-hmm. you know. That that's up for you to role play, um, but yeah, we, we had we had some fun with that, and then uh, okay. and then like uh, the the trainers or the the binders, depending on what your class is, you actually bring new traits to the table. So depending on what your class is, you can actually teach them certain things that they wouldn't normally know. Okay. And then uh, same thing with breeding, is you can actually breed traits that they wouldn't normally have. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of customizing your monsters. Um, also, you get you get small stat increases as you level. So uh, that's that's another thing that you know you, you go oh well, I I like my attack but it could be higher so I'm gonna I'm gonna put another point in that. So cool. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's talk about the binders then a little bit. What are some of the classes that people can be? So there there's six classes. Um, and we kind of based them off of just what we thought people would want to do. Uh, so each, each class also has two different archetypes. So they, there's two different ways you can play them. Uh, the first one is kind of the leader type. He's kind of your, your Ash Ketchum, you know, and we call that the knight. Uh, and he, there's two ways you can play him. Either he's, uh, like leading a party. And gives bonuses to the whole party, and he's all about combat. He's all about like giving directions to the group. Or you can play the the champion knight, which is they're all all about 
focusing on their monster in particular. That's that's more like the Ash and Pikachu mm. bond. It's like you have a special bond with your monsters, and they'll fight harder for you because they feel so strongly about fighting on your side and that kind of thing. Uh, and then, then there's other types, like there's the Scoundrel, and the Scoundrel's all about dirty fighting. And mm. so there... Uh, one is all about uh, putting conditions on your enemies so that you can make wild monsters easier to catch and opponents like easier to defeat. Um, and then there's there's the ranger who's all about being in the wilderness and they they're good at trapping monsters. They have the best bonuses when it comes to catching more monsters. We already talked about how they can have four monsters active instead of three. Uh, there's the alchemist, which is all about changing things. So you can be an alchemist that actually changes the, the affinity of, of attacks to different affinities so that during oh. combat you, you can go like, oh, well, this, this normally would be a fire type, but it, now it's going to be a water type of attack. And so you can play that to your advantage. Um, and then the, there's an alternative way you can play the alchemist where they actually, they learn how to, um, make, potions and like you know like uh treats for for the monsters to give them bonuses during combat hmm. um and then there's also there's the scholar which is all about figuring out how how things work they have kind of a bardic knowledge uh when it comes to monsters when they they encounter a monster they can roll their knowledge and see if they what they know about it uh and they so they can be breeders. That's their one archetype. And then their other one is they actually make the magic crystals, um, that you can catch monsters with. And they can, they can put extra stuff into the crystals so that either to make it easier to catch the monsters or to give monsters actually trapped in it, uh, more bonuses for different things. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, I like that. And then, and then the final class is, the concordant, which they're the specialists, and they choose one of the affinities that they're the best with, and they basically get bonuses when they fight with monsters of that type. Um, or the the second archetype for the concordant is they actually they actually cast their own magic, and they basically make uh, the terrain different during the fight. So. Uh, so kind of like the weather effects that you would have in Pokemon, they can mm-hmm. do stuff like that. Mm, cool. And then I, I like that the binders, like they're, they've got their stats and everything too, like we talked about earlier, their, their attributes and their skills. Um, and it's, it's kept pretty minimal. Like they, like there's three major attributes and skills that fall beneath each one. Um, how, how was like narrowing that down? How did, how did that go? I guess. Um, that was, that was difficult. Um, I, I think when we were figuring that out, we didn't have a clear way we wanted to go. And um, I think even what we ended up with, um, there were some people on the team that weren't entirely happy with it, mm-hmm. but we kind of were like, I think this works. Uh, and it it's similar to like the world of darkness where you have like kind of the you know, the interaction, the mental, and the physical attributes um, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And then there's there's skills underneath it. The skills are kind of broad, and some people find them a little bit confusing. 
Um, but other people like them because they're broad, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so I and actually the way we ended up making the skills work is kind of unique, which is instead of having like the more dots you have, the more dice you get. It actually you have to get to a certain cutoff, and then you're actually your dice go up a scale. So to to do most things in the game, you roll two d six. That's our that's our d twenty used for basically mm. everything. Okay. Right. Um, and then what we did with the skills is we said, okay, well if you're really bad at a skill or you're not very trained in it, you only get to roll two d four. And then if you're average at it, you get to roll two d six. And then if you're really good at it, you get to roll two d eight. Ah, okay. And uh, and so that's that's how we ended up making the skills work. So you you have to get a certain number of dots in a skill to get to that you know 2d6 and then 2d8 um and it kind of works fun like it things have uh the same dc uh you know difficulty out of combat so like a seven is considered normal nine is hard and then 11 is very hard um because even if you're only 2d6 getting an 11 or 12 is still pretty difficult so that that was how we came up with that and like our our uh, I would say our difficulty numbers look they look odd um, coming from like a D and D standpoint because you're used to everything's like oh ten plus a number mm-hmm. or you know maybe eight plus a number and then you get like something in the teens but ours they go every two from seven seven's our base since we do a two D six system and uh and that's how our, that's how the monster attacks work too oh okay yeah yeah and then we actually. We ended up putting a, another mechanic in with the monsters where um, your monster can has a certain number of grit points. And so the grit is it's something new we added, and it's just for a little bit extra oomph, like something to play around with with the classes. And depending on what class your trainer is, you get a certain number between like uh, like three and six, I think, is the numbers. And then your monsters also have their own. Uh and basically, you can spend it to do different things. So, like, you can make it easier to attack. So instead of rolling 2d6 to attack, you roll 2d8 to attack. Um, or you can spend you can spend a point to do more damage. Or sometimes techniques have, like, oh, if you spend a point on grit, you can do this extra thing. And also some classes have, like, okay, you can spend a point on grit to do this other thing. You know? So that that was, like, that was something for us to play around with. Uh, that gave us like this new mechanic that we could make, you know, other things, you know, to play around with. And it's a limited resource. You get, you only get so many per day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then also, but the thing is, if you encounter wild monsters, they also have their own grit points. Um, and they can actually use it to break out of crystals. So like oh. when you try, when you try and crap, trap a monster in a crystal, you know how like the Pokeball jiggles, mm-hmm. right? So, so the way our, our mechanic works is, so you, you throw the crystal, or actually you don't throw it, you, you <laughs> hold it up and you do a risk, you do like a ritual and then the magic comes out and gets it. Nice. Uh, but you roll a, you roll a d20, that's our, that's how you do it in game terms. And then you want to get high. And so if you get high enough that you get past whatever number you need to get, you, you trap the monster, right? But, then the monster has a chance to break free and they can spend a point of grit to roll a D six and it ups, ups the difficulty for them to break out. Oh man. 
And so, uh, so that was something that we, we actually had carried over from the initial Pokemon, which, uh, like really had driven, driven some of us crazy because we're like, okay, you know, the, the Pokemon's going to catch out, break out. Mm -hmm. They're going to break out. (laughs) And like to this day, like the one guy, he'll talk about how in our first adventure, he was trying to catch this one Spearow and it broke out of a Pokeball like four times in a row. <laughs> He's like, someday I'm going to go back and catch that Spearow. Yeah. That but, one. Uh, yeah. That one specific one. Yeah. I think it's going to be a Fero when it comes back. Oh, yes. Good. But, uh, but it adds, it, it's fun because like it, it adds like that extra dynamic and like the catching the monsters. That's, that's where it gets really exciting, especially when, when you're playing with somebody new, like they know all about like, Oh, I need to catch, I need to catch this monster and this is how I do it. Yeah. Um, which is also, that's, um, that's an interesting way that the game ended up, uh, transforming in subtle ways, like here and there was initially the way that we did capturing was the game master rolled the D20. Oh. And, and so what we found from role playing, like doing testing out in the field, we went to conventions and stuff and we bring new people in. They're like, they wanted to roll the D20. And I'm like, I'm like, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, sure. You roll it. And, uh, and stuff like, like that's just how it works. And also initially, so like I talked about how everything was 2D6. Well, at one point we decided, um, I really pushed for this personally because I was like, I was like, we're doing 2D6 for everything. Why don't we do 2D6 for the capturing too? And so we tried it. Mm-hmm. And what we found was it worked out horribly. Mm. Um, because on a D20, you really have that, that randomness. You know, you really have, you got the whole range between one and 20. It could be anything. But with the 2D6, you have the bell curve, which in combat is fine. Yeah. But what we found was to make the monster still difficult to capture, it meant that if you were not teched out to capture monsters, you got to a certain point and you just couldn't catch them anymore. And and then you also had uh, the one guy playing the ranger, and he got to the point where he couldn't not capture things. <laughs> so it was like it was almost impossible for him to not catch something, and the rest of the group, it was impossible for them to catch anything. Yeah. So we're like, this is it's not fun. It's not working out. And I think that was a really good, um, one of the, like the best, like, okay, through play testing, we learned this is not working. How do we change it? We changed it back to a D20 and we're like, you know, that's, that's what it needs to be. So we tried out something that didn't work. We went back to what it was before. Oh, perfect. So when you started playing at conventions and with new players, you know, people that had never seen the system before, did they do anything um, like completely unexpected? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, players will always surprise you. Uh-huh. I would say, uh, like, the thing that really surprised me was there are some people that, uh, you know, if you... If you give them a monster and you're like, okay, you can control this monster, most people are like, okay, I'll fight other monsters. That makes sense. But there are some people that are like, well, I want to go kill the other trainer. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and the first time somebody ever said that to me, I was like, um, you, you can't? <laughs> and they were like, well, why? And I'm like, uh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, and this actually led to, 
probably one of the biggest discussions and arguments we had within the, the team where it's like most of the team really, we didn't want there to be a monster on human combat, but we couldn't figure out reasons that we could explain why you couldn't do that. And we're like, it actually like part of our lore is that humans are afraid of monsters. So it makes sense. The monsters can attack the humans We're like, we don't want that to happen. And Mm -hmm. ultimately we, we ended up putting in some rules that we were like, these are optional. If you really want to, you can fight humans, but our uh our ruling was basically as long as there are other monsters on the battlefield that are opponents um a monsters will always ignore humans they will they do not view humans enough of a th- as enough of a threat mm. to actually attack them as long as there are other mo- monsters to fight uh so we're like you know if if you find a guy out in the wilderness and you kill all his monsters and then you want to go kill him but you could if you want to <laughs> Man, if that's the game you want to play, but uh, oh boy, but yeah, we're like some people. Some people want to do that, and I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to say they they can't, but at the yeah. same time, I'm like, I. And then the other the problem was like logistically, we were like, okay, we sat down, we're like, can we make this work? And we came up with a, like a little bit of a system, or like, okay, well here we'll we'll make stats for humans, and we weren't entirely happy with it. And we're like, it kind of works, but I don't think so. Like the humans are really underpowered compared to the monsters, mm-hmm. and you know, or like I don't know. So we had, we were like, you know, if you want to fight monsters, you should just play Dungeons and Dragons, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it's it's cool that it's there uh, if folks want to do that, but yeah, it, it seems a little out of the genre, you know. So Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This. How long ago was your was your campaign actually? Uh, I, I want to say I want to say almost three years ago. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. So so you you've had some time to reflect. We <laughs> we funded in February 2015, and it took us a while to get finished. We ended up put, we wanted to deliver in one year. Mm-hmm. So we put a. We had put a projection of February 2016 when we would be finally done and theoretically everybody would have the book in their hands. Uh, We ended up taking until about July of 2016. Okay. So we were a couple months uh, behind, but not too bad. Um, I I always say like if if your Kickstarter delivers six months late, then they're early. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. I, I backed many, many Kickstarters and, there's plenty that I, I'm waiting on several years later. So, um, we were pretty happy that we managed to, to do it in a fair amount of time. Um, we probably would have done a lot more work beforehand if mm-hmm. we realized how much work there was. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> turns out writing an entire role playing game is, it's really, it's a lot of work. Cause, uh, cause you have a lot of stuff in your own head and you're like, I know how it works. I just have to write it down. Mm-hmm. Well, it takes a lot more time than you think. So, and our book, so our book ended up being a little bit over 300 pages. Oh, wow. And, uh, so it's a th- 314 pages. So, 
And so there's one page per monster, and there's 114 monsters. So that's wow. that's 200 pages that are just pure rules. Um, I mean, granted, there's some fluff in there too. There's sure. uh, there's stories and stuff, and and we built do a little bit of world building. But yeah, like uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. There and there was a lot of stuff that needed to be edited. Uh, and like I was telling you earlier, the one girl on our team who she's the doctor, mm-hmm. she's a college professor. So she basically would have to do edits whenever she could in between semesters. Oh gosh. And, uh, and so like, and she goes, she goes out to the wilderness a lot, like, uh, to national parks and stuff with her husband whenever they're on breaks. They're both college professors. And so she would just, she would just take, she would print off like these big stacks of paper and then she would go out <laughs> and she'd be like, all right, I'm going to edit all this while I'm camping. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And so that was how she got it done. That's and then, funny. uh, and then so all of it had to be laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the template for the pages with the monsters was actually was, was nice because it was just the same thing over and over, but it was kind of tedious. So we ended up actually bringing in a second graphic designer mm-hmm. just to contract them and be like, okay, we'll give you some money, uh, to do some more pages. Yeah. We had to get a lot of artwork. Um, there's close to 250 pieces of artwork in the book. Um, it's a lot of artwork because, you know, there's, there's one for every monster. We got pictures at the beginning of every, uh, chapter. There's, uh, we tried to spread a lot of artwork throughout it. We wanted it to really pop. Um, so I, and I did a lot of the art, artist recruiting. Um, I spent a lot of nights late on DeviantArt looking up artists. I went on DeviantArt, I went on Fiverr, I went on um, basically anywhere I could find where, like, potentially there would be starving college kids who would be willing to do mm-hmm. artwork for uh, a fairly small fee. We And I, I we didn't pay our artists a lot uh, because we didn't have a lot of money, but we still, there was just so much of it that it's like we had to spend several thousand dollars on artwork. Yeah. Um that was that was the bulk of our costs actually. Um and then uh we happened to know a friend of a friend who actually was a really more prolific artist and she did the cover art which um we were pretty proud of. She did a really good job. Um I I uh she sent us a bunch of sketches and I was like, "Okay, I like this part. I like this part." And I was like, "Can you put this from here and this from there and like maybe do this in reverse and uh and she was great she worked with us really well and uh and i think the cover art is really great mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've, you've had a look at it yeah it's but, awesome yeah and then we also recruited a couple random friends who they did some smart small art here and there uh and yeah it all it all managed to come together at the end but it was the last couple months were really uh, a slog it was i remember being in like may and i'm like oh my god we need to get this done mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like we were so close uh yeah and so then we once we finalized the the book we sent it off and we ended up printing through a drive through rpg um which is good if they're good for small print runs mm-hmm. we did a we ended up doing a 250 book print run um which uh, a lot of them went to our backers, and then some of them we kept for conventions and stuff. 
and and then they still they still have our print on demand uh, stuff so that it, when people buy a book every once in a while somebody will buy a book and we get an email. Very cool. Um, but yeah, uh, Kickstarter was a lot of fun. Um, it was also it was stressful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we uh, so our goal was twelve thousand um, dollars. Not too high. It was uh, fairly mm-hmm. modest, I think. Uh, we did not fund until so we did a thirty day campaign. I believe we funded like day twenty six. Oof. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So it's uh, it was kind of a nail biter towards the end. We ended up going over a little bit, so that was nice. Uh, but yeah, that because I don't know if you ever heard of like the bathtub effect, um, with Kickstarter projects. No, no, I don't think so. So what it is is uh, the first at the very beginning of the campaign, you get a lot of backers, mm-hmm. and then at the very very end of the campaign, you get a lot of backers. Mm-hmm. But in the middle, you get almost nothing. Hmm. And and so it's. And it's a very clear slope. You can you can look at if you go to uh, Kick Tracker, um, or or Kick Track or whatever the website yeah. is, like where they actually show you the rate that people are getting uh, a backers. You can see a very clear. There's a sharp incline the first couple of days, then it levels off, and then there's another sharp incline at the end. Hmm. And it's it's very similar to almost every single uh, Kickstarter project because when it first starts off, you get the people that are the most interested and they go, okay, I'll do this. They forget about it. No problem. And then a lot of people coming in the middle, they go, oh, I don't know. Maybe they're not going to fund. Maybe I'm not interested. But then when you only have two or three days left, then those people come back and they go, oh, it's now or never. I got to do it now. Yeah. So so you get those people at the end. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's so we got our big bump at the end. Cool. Um, and I, I looked into as much as I could for like, you know, can how much do you need for an independent role playing game? And you know, I looked at a lot of other successful projects. I determined like most of them, like the independent ones, are around ten to twenty thousand dollar goals. Uh, so I wanted to keep ours as low as we could. So I tried to estimate out, uh, you know, how much money we would mm-hmm. need. Um, we ended up needing a little bit more than we got, uh, but it was it ended up working okay because because uh, we ended up having some PDF sales afterwards that covered the costs. But uh, the art budget went a little high, and the printing costs were also kind of high. Those are those are your two big costs, um, assuming you're doing everything else yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, if you're doing all if you're doing all the writing and you can get someone to do the graphic design, that's that's some that takes a lot off your budget. Uh, But it's like you have to you have to pay the publisher to or the print house to to do the printing. And if you have artists on staff, in theory, you can get it all done for free. But uh, (laughs) but we didn't we didn't have that many artists and it, it was a lot of artwork like i said i think we ended up having about 12 or 13 artists work on the book oh that's awesome well so one of the things that you might be able to give uh heroes listening at home advice on uh coming into this this is your first game and i uh, imagine the first game for the the rest of your group too um how how do you build like the 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 excitement or the fan base to to get to a point where you can have a Kickstarter that funds like that? It's, it's difficult. Um, 
is we found it was very hard to basically be heard above all the noise. Um, you know, you go on Twitter and it's just a lot of people screaming about, you know, look at my thing, look at my thing. I'm more important than you. Uh, so like Twitter is almost no help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. having a, having a Facebook page helped a little bit. Um, we, that's where we got a lot. Our followers could, uh, could really keep in touch with us and, you know, they can message you straight, straight to you. Um, going to conventions, just trying to get the word out, um, going to local game stores, that helped. Um, but it's very time consuming. Yeah. And it is, it is difficult. And, um, I think our, one of our saving graces was that we were doing something that uh, there is fairly niche, but like doesn't exist all that much, which is the monster role playing game, yeah. monster catching role playing game. It's like there's not really a lot of published stuff out there. There's, like you were saying, the Pokemon tabletop. Um, but, like, I have – and there's some other stuff. There's some other independent stuff I've seen, mm-hmm. but it's not – none of it's really popular yeah. that I've seen. So I tried to really press that angle, especially when I met people in person. I'm like, you know, this is something that you don't see every day. And, you know, if you like role-playing games – and you want to play this kind of game, like you don't have a lot of other options. And we try, we're trying to make the best product we can for you. Yeah. So that was that was one of my selling points. Uh, another thing when I go to conventions now is I really try to play up the fact that with our game, um, you don't need a huge group. Uh, it's it's not D and D where you really need like five people in the party. Mm-hmm. You can play with just two or three people in a party and a game master. And it still it works. It works great. And actually, it's it's sometimes it's more fun playing with a smaller group. Um, and one of the things is, uh, since you have monsters and you're catching all these monsters, it's like you have multiple characters you're you're playing with yourself. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't have to have one thing that that fills every slot that you need because you can trade out your monster. So. Mm. It's not like playing a three-person D&D campaign where you go, oh, we don't have a rogue. Who's going to pick all our locks? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So you can kind of fill your own holes. And I've played, I've played this game even with just uh, two players, and it's still a lot of fun. It scales really well. You get a little bit more time with, with uh, the players if there's actually less people in the game. So that's fun, too. Uh, but... But yeah, to build a fan base, it, it is really difficult. I'm still trying to figure out a good way to do it myself. Uh, you know, uh, going on podcasts, you know, there's always that. Uh, I went on a few podcasts during the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, I don't know, I don't know how, how well that worked. You know, you never, you never know how popular a podcast you're going on might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, and you know, well, now it's, like I said, it's almost three years later and, and I would say there was, it was hard to find a role playing podcast that was not dedicated to a specific game. Yeah. Um, which is like, I've been thinking for years because personally, I just want to listen to, you know, like a podcast where they talk about different games. And, you know, now there's a couple good ones, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. one shot is really great, obviously. And, uh, I also like system. Yeah, right. <laughs> I like system mastery too. I've been listening to them a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just like the fact that they switch, 
systems all the time. You know, I like this. I like to hear new systems. Um, yeah, absolutely. And like the whole scene has really exploded in the last just couple years. You know, yeah. was there anything else that you wanted to touch on uh, about the, either the game itself or, um, you know, the, the logistics, <laughs> the experiences that you had along the way? Mm. I don't know. I, I would say uh, overall, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm really glad that I did it. Uh, I'm also Good. glad that it's over. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad yeah. that we finally finished. Uh, we always talk about doing, you know, another project. And then, you know, but now it's like there's, all of us have kids. All of us got married. Uh, you know, our jobs have gotten more complicated. And we're like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know when we'll ever do it. But we can always go back, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would say if, if you want to do something like this, don't don't stop yourself, you know. It's like I was... I was 31 years old when we started and I was like, you know, I I was like, I, this is going to take forever to finish. Do I really want to do this? But at the same time, I was like, I'm only 31. You know, there's plenty of time to do it. Why not? It's like, you're never, you're never too old to start something new, you know? And, uh, and the other thing is, uh, if you do do it with friends, you know, just really clearly, I would say, uh, communicate with each other what's going to be expected of each other um we went through the whole process of you know forming an actual company we went to lawyers we had contracts drawn up we did all all the boring legal stuff and we we sat down we're like all right you know we got to make sure nobody's gonna flake out not do their share of the of the work and we also have to make sure you know nobody's gonna try and uh screw the rest of us over and and because you you really don't you don't want to lose a friendship over over something like this, yeah. and uh, and so we we ended up working out pretty well. But I can see easily how you know they, some people say you should never go into business with friends, and I can understand because it gets stressful. There was definitely there were moments while while we were doing it, and it was, I was like you know you're really getting on my nerves. I don't want to see you anymore kind of thing <laughs> and we we still managed to to get through it together but it was hard towards the end uh so just know that going in like you know it probably will strain your friendship if you do this with friends uh but you know with your friendships more important than the game and then another thing is you know some people do this kind of thing all by themselves which uh is very admirable um i'm mm-hmm. i'm always very impressed whenever i see a system that was designed by one person uh, but, yeah. uh, we couldn't do that ourselves, obviously. Um, well, I think, I think the one guy who did a lot of the initial work, he probably could have if he wanted to, but, uh, but it helps to have people around just, even just give, give you a second point of view. Um, yeah, and absolutely. to really push you in a different way. And I'm, I was always the one who was like, okay, let's try the a different way. Let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. And, uh, and I think I drove other people crazy because I always wanted to change the rules. And I was like, I was like, it's our game. We can change the rules whenever we want. I was like, we should change the rules. (laughs) Or, or somebody would say, oh, well, there's no rule for that. And I'm like, I can make my own rule for it. You know, so yeah, that's, that's the way I kind of like to, to play games. And in a way, it's made me more annoying when we play games that aren't ours because I, because I'll be thinking, Oh, well, you know, if we change this rule, we could do this other thing. <laughs> and <Yep>. so, 
<laughs> but but yeah, you know, you, you got to really experiment and and try different things. Uh, like one of the things, like I was talking about um, earlier, where you know re, you roll two d six to hit with a with an attack, and then if you spend a point of grit, you roll two d eight. Well, it wasn't always like that when mm-hmm. we when we initially started. Initially, our mechanic was you rolled three d six instead of two d six, and then we ended up mm-hmm. deciding we didn't like it as much. And we also changed the rules for how you got a critical hit because the initial rules for how you got a critical hit was you had to roll doubles. And and so that was the thing was when you spent grit, you got three dice, so you had a better chance to get doubles. But then when we ended up changing to 2d8, well, now it's actually harder to get doubles on 2d8 than it is on 2d6. So we changed the way, the way you got criticals, and we said, okay, we're going to go off the dice total. So we said, okay, if you roll an 11 or higher just with the dice without bonuses, that's a critical. So that meant 2d6, you need an 11 or 12. But with 2d8, you mm-hmm. could get an 11, 12, 13, or a 14, or a 15, or 16. So, oh man. Um, so there's a lot <laughs> more ways you can you can critical, and uh, it it was another incentive that like this is this is why you would want to spend grit to hit because it's it makes it easier yeah. to critical, and so just stuff like that, you know, just try whatever works and and read developer blogs um, and. Uh, one of one of my favorite uh, designer blogs was definitely uh, if you ever go on Tumblr, uh, Mark mm-hmm. Rosewater, who he he's the guy who is the lead designer of Magic: The Gathering. Mm, okay, and yeah. He does a lot of stuff on Tumblr, and he actually has his own podcast too. He calls it Drive to Drive to Work, and he re- he actually records it on his way to work every morning, and uh, and because he talks about how he's so busy. That he doesn't have, he wanted to do a podcast and he didn't have any time. So he's like, I figured out I, I have half an hour on the way to work and I'll just record it then. Um, but he has a lot of really good advice. Like even, I mean, he makes magic, which is a card game, obviously, but you can roll over a lot of that stuff to role playing games. Some of it's obviously different, mm-hmm. but uh, he, he tells you a lot about, you know, how to, how to design, how to develop, you know, always be looking in. He's very, really cool guy. Um, so I definitely recommend if you're interested in game design, I always recommend to listen to his podcast. He's got like he's got like three or four hundred episodes now. Oh, he actually wow. <laughs> he found himself uh he was recording them so often. Initially he was putting out one a week and then he ended up putting out two a week because he he had so many extra that he's like, I need to put out put them out faster. We'll have to link him in the in the show notes. I, now, now that you remind me of his premise, yeah, I, I've I've heard of his show, but I haven't actually sat down to listen to it yet. But. Yeah, it's great. Um, and a lot of his episodes are obviously about Magic: The Gathering, but uh, mm-hmm. you can go through his backlog, and there's ones that are just about designing specifically. Oh yeah. Like uh, he and he writes articles too on on Wizards of the Coast. Like he he does so much stuff, but he has a really great article that's called the den the ten rules of game design. And oh yeah, he kind of breaks down what he thinks are the most important things you need to do when you're designing a game, and so it's like you know all like you know engaging your audience and like making it fun and like things like that. And he has an order. He has like a specific order, and like this is why this is important. And he breaks them all down. It's really, but it's really interesting. 
there's there's a lot of really awesome advice in there. Thank you. And Jonathan, where can we find you online? Uh, you and Magic Monsters. Ah, uh, so you can uh, you can search Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Tumblr. We're all met just for Magic Monsters. It's M A J I M O N S T E R S, and we're on all that. Um, and you can find our book at drivethroughrpg.com. Again, look for Magic Monsters. Or if you want to take a trip to the past, you can look at our Kickstarter page. It's still up there. <laughs> and see cool. see what it looked like. See our kind of awful video that we made for the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a relic now. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Huge thanks again to Jonathan for being on the show. All his links are in the show notes, and of course, Magi Monsters is available to purchase right now. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier mostly on Twitter at Modifier Podcast. We also have a Tumblr, Facebook, and G+, with varying levels of upkeep success, all under the same Modifier Podcast name. You can email me directly with questions, comments, or show suggestions at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts that include shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, Adventure, Neoscum, System Mastery, and Talking Tabletop. Adventure is an actual play podcast hosted by Pranks Paul that focuses on generating fan fiction for established books, TV shows, and movies through tabletop gaming. Adventure will feature a rotating cast of players in a variety of media properties. Find out more about all these shows at oneshotpodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.